Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk slash pm. Hello and welcome to Parliament Matters Explains, a new bonus feature from the Parliament Matters podcast. I'm Mark Darcy. And I'm Ruth Fox. In these editions, we'll be focusing on issues raised by you, the listeners. So send us your questions at hansardsociety.org.uk forward slash PMUQ. This time, our subject is how does Parliament actually go about making law? Well, where should we start? If we start with bills can be brought forward by the government and introduced in either the House of Commons or the House of Lords. But let's start with a bill that goes into the House of Commons. So the bill has been produced, it's been drafted. The government's ready to present it to Parliament at what's called first reading or presentation of the bill. It'll be accompanied by things like the explanatory notes, which are kind of a plain English guide to what the bill contains for people like me who are not lawyers. It'll have a delegated powers memorandum, which looks at the powers in the bill and the scrutiny for those powers when they're utilised after royal assent. It'll have things like an impact assessment, it's not required at that stage, but we'll, we'll often have an assessment from the department about, about the impact that the legislation will have or that the government thinks it will have. And it'll be presented to Parliament at first reading, and it's basically the reading of the bill's title into the record. And the Speaker will then say to the Minister, second reading what day? And this is the point at which you often see in you know, civil society organisations or people at home watching the bill, sort of panic descends if they're taking a particular interest in the bill. Because at that point, very often, the minister will say, tomorrow. And <laughs> all hell breaks loose. Everybody panics and thinks, uh, uh, really? Is it going to have second reading tomorrow? No, they're not going to have second reading tomorrow. This is a, a, a ritual lost in the mists of parliamentary time where they say tomorrow and it's never tomorrow. No, almost well, never tomorrow. Almost never tomorrow. Almost. Never say never, never where, parliament's say never where parliament's concerned. Absolutely. 
be a very good rule. And then you get the next stage is second reading. And we always used to find this a bit difficult on today in Parliament because the MPs would have their first actual debate at the second reading. So the first debate is the second reading. And that sounds a bit silly to outside listeners unless you go back and explain, as you've just explained, what the first reading is. So we tend to use phrases like their initial debate. And the point of a second reading debate is to look at the essential principle of a law. Is it a good idea to do such and such? What about this problem? What about that problem? But not to plunge into the fine detail of it. No, they can't amend it at this stage. They can't make detail changes then. And if they do plunge too far into fine detail, often the chair will turn around and say that that's really a committee stage speech and tell the MP concerned to shut up. What you will sometimes find is that one of the opposition parties, sometimes a number of them, will lay a table what's called a reasoned amendment. Now, that's not an amendment to the text of the bill. It's an amendment to the text of the motion that the House will pass pass the bill. And that's basically a way for the opposition parties to register their concern. Because the, the motion is at the start that this bill be read a second time. Read, that's, that's it. Um, and it's basically a way for the opposition to register their concerns and say, well, the, the bill may do X, but it doesn't do Y and Z. Yeah. That, and for these reasons, we yeah. reject the bill. Yeah. So the, the kind of reasoned amendment will essentially say something like, declines to give the bill a second reading because it's pants for the following reasons. <laughs> uh, and then um, there'll be one from the official opposition. There'll sometimes be one from, say, the... SNP or the Lib Dems or the DUP or whoever it is, explaining their different reasons. And sometimes you'll have whole pages of several different groups of people all explaining slightly different reasons why they don't think the bill should be given a second reading. Yeah. And it's important to stress, it is exceptionally unusual for a bill to be rejected at second reading. I mean, at, the least, last time, at least a government bill. At least a government bill. The last time was the Shops Bill in 1986, and that was an important piece of legislation, liberalising Sunday trading laws, but it was, it was not a critical plank of the then government's legislative programme. But the idea of a second reading rejection, as we saw fairly recently with the Rwanda Bill, I mean, it would have been absolutely extraordinary for a bill that was central to a government's programme to yeah. be derailed by a rebellion of its own backbenchers. So that would be a huge, possibly government-ending event. Yeah. So then you get, after second reading, assuming that the House votes to support it, um, you usually then get several motions that have to be considered by the House straight after. So one is usually a programming motion, which sets out the timetabling of the bill's next stages. So it's committee stage scrutiny and so on, right through to the to the end of the process. And that basically sets out how much time MPs are going to be able to spend for the bill in those stages. You then usually get a, a money motion if it involves government expenditure, because the House will need to authorise that. And you get what's called a ways and means motion. So a motion which you know basically provides for the taxes and charges that are needed to cover the government expenditure. And one of the little surprise packages in those motions is that if a money resolution isn't moved, and a money resolution has to be moved by a Treasury Minister, then actually the further detailed consideration of the bill can't proceed very far. Because as soon as you get onto anything that involves it spending money, which is pretty much anything, Mm -hmm. then the whole process grinds to a halt. And a few years back, there was a private member's bill on, as I recall, housing benefit. Also one on constituency boundary reforms. And one on constituency Mm -hmm. boundary reforms that um, the government this was during the coalition years, that the government of the day didn't support. The Lib Dems within it supported it, but the, the, the whole government didn't. And uh, the bill was in committee for ages, and every, every few days the bill committee would meet and be solemnly told that it couldn't proceed because there'd been no money resolution, and then there'd be a little bit of a sort of performative round, and then everyone would go off to their next thing <laughs> in their diary. But that was an example of how the government's control of the purse strings could yeah. stop people legislating unless there was explicit permission to spend money in the cause of that bill. Yeah, so that way of thwarting private members' bills, you know, bills from from backbenchers. 
Um, but if the government bill gets its second reading successfully and all these motions are passed, then we move to committee stage, which mm. is sort of the more detailed scrutiny. Now, people often refer to it as line-by-line scrutiny. It really isn't, uh, certainly at least not in the House of Commons, partly because it's programmed, because it's timetabled. And if time runs out, then whole clauses or sections of bills, you know, schedules well, may, not get, through, yeah. may not get debated at all. Yeah. And they'll only be you know, considered for scrutiny once they arrive in the Lords. Committee stage, there are you know, three possible options. So a bill can be sent to what's called Committee of the Whole House, which essentially is sent to the House of Commons chamber to be debated. Now, that tends to happen if it's a bill of what's called first-class constitutional importance. House of Lords reform. Yes. It can be a, a bill that's, that's particularly urgent, or it could be that you know the government is struggling to fill time in the chamber and they put a bill in to, mm-hmm. to fill a gap in the timetable. Yeah, there's a couple of recent examples of that and uh, one yet to come on the parliamentary timetable, but yeah. let's not go into that now. I mean, the other point about timetabling here is hardened parliamentary hacks like myself can remember the Nick Clegg Lords reform during the coalition years, which was essentially derailed because they couldn't agree a timetable motion. It was the bit that Conservative MPs could rebel on against the coalition's programme. Oh, we just need more time for discussion. They wanted such an infinite amount of time mm. for discussion that the, the bill was eventually pulled because otherwise there nothing else would have been debated and the, the whole parliamentary machine would have ground to a halt. So the timetable motion can matter quite a lot. But the, the main point I have about committee stages is that when bills are sent to a committee upstairs on the committee corridor, and these public, line bill of Victoria, yeah, public bill committee, a line of these Victorian committee rooms upstairs in, in Parliament, what happens there strikes me as mostly a fairly empty ritual. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I think there's two things. I mean, one is, unlike select committees, public bill committees are whipped. So MPs are essentially following the party line. Public bill committees can take public evidence, like a select committee. But unlike a select committee, it's a politically charged evidence session. And I say that, I don't know whether you've ever given evidence to a public bill committee, but I gave evidence once, I mean, on the retained EU law bill, actually, last year. And I have to say, I found it quite, you know, for working for an organisation that's sort of politically impartial, I found it quite an uncomfortable experience because it felt like I was a political football between the Labour and Conservative sides in a way that I never feel when I'm before a select committee. But those evidence sessions are the bit of a public bill committee that can attract a bit of press attention yeah. because, frankly, the proceedings are a bit more comprehensible than they otherwise are. But the thing about it is you are chosen to give evidence by the whips on either side, because they think that you might be going to say something that's advantageous to their particular argument or cause. So they're kind of bringing you forward to give evidence because they want you to help advance their argument. So it is a very different atmosphere to a select committee. Is it particularly you know, meaningful scrutiny at that stage? Sometimes. I mean, it, you can see groups and arguments developing, mm. and you then see that sort of, you know, in the next stage of the scrutiny process, you can start to see that emerge in amendments. But very often it feels like a very perfunctory process. And, you know, as you find with other committees sometimes, it's not unusual to see MPs that sit in there doing their constituency correspondence. MPs are in and out because they've got other responsibilities, they're going to do other duties, and it, it, it just doesn't always feel like a particularly... Um, a satisfying experience. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the time MPs who are on bill committees, who are the junior ones, not the shadow ministers or the ministers, are basically there to stick their hand up on cue to vote in a particular way as their whips tell them. Mm. And it takes quite a lot 
for that not to happen. I mean, sometimes you get bill committees on stuff that's maybe highly charged, but isn't necessarily party political. I'm thinking of the bill committee on the uh, act that authorised gay marriage, Mm. where it was actually quite bitterly contested, but it wasn't across party lines. Mm. Mm. Uh, And that made for actually a very lively committee process, including the kind of evidence-taking bit you were talking about. Yeah. The other thing, just to distinguish Committee of the Whole House from um, Public Bill Committee, is in Committee of the Whole House, of course, you're in the chamber, the Speaker does not preside. It's the Deputy Speaker, known as the Chairman of Ways and Means, who presides. Uh, In a Public Bill Committee, it's it's essentially a senior parliamentarian Mm. who's been chosen through the Speaker's... Chairs panel. Yeah, and and the committee is smaller, so it, it will be something like 17 to 30 members, unless it's a finance bill, in which case it could be quite a, a bit bigger. Speaking of finance bills, that's one example where a bill can have a split committal. So some of its clauses can be considered in committee of the whole House, but some will be considered in the public bill committee, and that will be set out in the programme new motion after second reading. Yeah. That's usually agreed between the parties, isn't it? Yeah. That these, these are the big controversial bits we want on the floor of the whole House, and, and this is the sort of small print bit that we're less interested in fighting out. In, in full public glare and prime time in the yeah. chamber. Yeah, and the advantage of committee of the whole house, of course, is all members can be present, all members can take part if they want, if they can attract the deputy speaker's eye to speak. In public bill committee, it is that smaller selected group of members that have been chosen by the whips to, to, to take part. But public bill committees are followed by the bill coming back to the floor of the whole house for report stage. And that is often the most interesting bit of a bill's passage through the House of Commons, because you often find, at least on on certain bills that have a bit of heat around them, things like criminal justice measures, that an awful lot of people pour in amendments on particular pet causes from all directions. And then it's up to the Chair of Ways and Means again to select which amendments actually get debated. And this can be quite hard going for them, because there's often quite a head of steam behind amendments got up by groups of backbench MPs and a little bit of angst if they don't make it to the wicket. Yeah, I mean, there is this sort of this growing sense that we've got amendmentitis in in the House of Commons, the growing number of amendments at this stage. Now, partly it's the government bringing forward a lot of late stage amendments Mm. itself, amendments that perhaps are responding to what's been said in committee or new developments. Sometimes they're introducing whole new policy areas at, at this stage that for whatever reason, internally in their departmental policy process, they have not sorted out in time for the bill or something's happened events, dear boy events, and they decide that they actually want to bolt something on, onto the bill. So government amendments are one thing. But you're also seeing a lot of amendments being put put down by backbench MPs. And my sense is that sometimes it's a it's a campaigning initiative. You know, you can table your amendment, take your picture of the you know the the amendment paper. I've laid my amendment, put it out on social media. Do your sort of you know supportive article video. in the Guardian or the Telegraph, yeah, and off you go. Do your supportive video on Twitter. Get a piece in the in the local paper, and it sounds and feels like you've done something. But actually, for most of those amendments, there is almost no chance that they're going to get selected by the speaker. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But there are some people who've kind of mastered this art a bit and who have been pursuing very long-term campaigns on specific issues. I'm thinking of people like David Davis uh, on the Conservative benches or Dame Margaret Hodge on on the Labour benches. Her, for example, long-standing campaign on more financial transparency, registers of ownership of assets clamping down on dirty money coming 
into the country has been fought through bill after bill. Every finance bill has stuff from her on it. Almost any bill about the City of London and financial regulation has stuff from her on it. And eventually she starts getting some of her points made just by sheer attrition. And so the masters of these campaigning processes can eventually get results, but they have to be committed to the slog. Yeah, and Stella Creasy is another one on the Labour side who's, you know, really good at working the procedures, building alliances across party lines, and as you say, just hammering away, away, away. And the victories that you win are an amendment in the bill. They're not, you know, huge things that are going to make the six o'clock news. Mm, minister announced they're suddenly slightly changing the wording to meet your concerns. Yeah, or but they are the opportunity to make a genuine difference on a, a niche, narrow, but important point. Now, the report stage is followed by third reading stage, and people sometimes expect that there's going to be a full-scale debate. You know, this is the final debate of the House on the bill as it's emerged after any detailed changes that have been made at committee or made at report stage. But often it can be over in a blink of an eye. Report stage these days is a pretty perfunctory rubber-stamping process where a minister gets up and says, "Uh, well, this is a jolly good bill, thanks for all the amendments, thanks for such and such for making such helpful suggestions. And then a shadow minister gets up and says, aren't we all jolly good chaps? And that amendment goes to the Lords and it can all happen in less than five minutes. Or it can actually be taken so formally that it doesn't really happen at all. Yeah. And the House just goes, yeah, and it's through. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, third reading is often an hour's debate, if that. If that. Um, and it's I've often. Seen it about two minutes. Yeah, and it's often thanking everybody who's been involved in the bill, mm. thanking everybody who's my served producer, on the select committee, yeah, uh, on the public bill committee. In theory, as at second reading, you could have a reasoned amendment calling for the rejection of the bill. In theory, you could. Which is being threatened on the Rwanda bill. Yeah, in theory, you could, you know, the, the bill could fall at that stage. But if the government's got that far, it would be extraordinary. And then we're into the next stage of the process, where the bill is physically carried from the House of Commons across the parliamentary divide by a clerk to the House of Lords. So the whole process can then sort of rinse and repeat. Yeah, well, I, I think we should just linger on that image of the clerk walking from the, the House of Commons to the House of Lords across Central Lobby. In full regalia. In full regalia, full fig. The, the doors will be open to facilitate his or her walking through. And they carry this bill, uh, a message to the Lords, wrapped in green silk ribbon known as a, a ferret. <laughs> Um, which, apparently, which apparently is, is, is a type of Italian silk known as a fioretti. Nobody be laughing at home uh, listening to my uh, terrible Italian accent. And it will be handed over to a Lord's clerk. And of course, when it comes the other way, from the Lords to the Commons, it's wrapped in a red ribbon. Of course, it also happens digitally. <laughs> <laughs> so the bill will be sent by email Ping. or, or uh, Microsoft OneDrive or something. So yes, the bill then arrives in the, in the House of Lords for its stages of scrutiny, which broadly model those of the, the Commons, mm. but there are a few important differences. First of all, if the bill is something that was promised in the government's manifesto, their lordships by convention, a convention called the Salisbury-Addison Convention, don't kill it at second reading. It can't fall at that first hurdle, that first initial debate. Peers may signal their intention to amend the living daylights out of it, but what they won't do is vote it down. It's incredibly rare anyway for peers to attempt to vote down a bill at second reading if it's come to them from the Commons, because that would be a bit of a snub to the elected House. And that was the sort of thing that that got the House of Lords reformed uh, 120-odd years ago. So they have to be very, very careful about that sort of stuff. And the other big difference is that when it's debated, 
it's almost always debated on the floor of the House of Lords. There are occasions when less controversial bills are sent to something called Grand Committee, but most bills are debated on the floor of the House of Lords, and every amendment proposed by every pair is at least sort of acknowledged in that debate, even if they don't spend hours and hours talking about each one. Yeah, I mean, the important thing to remember about the Lords compared to the Commons is the government doesn't control the agenda. There isn't, therefore, programming in the same way that there is in the Commons. And yes, in theory, every peer who wants to speak, every peer who wants to table an amendment can be heard. But if it's clear that in the laws there's a lack of support for something, a peer will be, shall we say, ill-advised to press it to a division and waste members' time. You know, peer pressure will be applied Absolutely. to try and get them to, to withdraw their, their amendment and, and not press it to a vote. This is the House of Lords being self-regulating, and so there's yeah. lots of water order if people are going on too long, <laughs> that the displeasure yeah. is felt. What then happens, and this is almost one of the key sections in the passage of a bill through Parliament, is House of Lords report stage. At committee stage, peers kind of have kind of shadow boxing debates where they thrash out an issue, Mm. but they don't normally take a vote on it. When you get to report stage, that's where their lordships might start making changes to a bill if they're minded to do so. And as you say, there is no government majority in the House of Lords. It's quite possible for Labour, the crossbenches, the Liberal Democrats, even the bishops to line up against something that a government's doing and outvote the Conservative peers. Yeah. And if you um, think about the, the committee stage, what the peers will often be doing is tabling what they will call sort of probing amendments. They will be looking to test the government's view. They'll be looking to try and assess support across the House. They'll be working behind the scenes in the tea rooms, in the restaurants, you know, in the voting lobbies to find out who might support their proposals. And then they'll make a judgment at report stage about what, what they will press. And some they will decide to prioritise and others they'll withdraw. And it can happen 100 times plus in a parliamentary session that the government's defeated in the House mm. of Lords. At, and these are usually report stage votes where some amendment that ministers don't want is grafted on to one of their bills. Ever so occasionally, a minister will promise a third reading amendment to a bill mm. to, to head off one of these defeats. And sometimes a compromise wording will be grafted on at that last possible stage of debate. They have a brief third reading, although it's not quite as perfunctory as the ones in the House of Commons. No, precisely because in the Commons you can't amend that third reading, whereas in the, in the Lords you can. The, the bill is then, if it's been changed and amendments have been made to it, sent back to the Commons because the, the key rule here is that no bill can pass into law until it's agreed in exactly the same form by both houses. So if peers make a change, it has to go back to MPs so that MPs can decide whether they agree with the change or want to reject it. And this gets us into the marvellous and completely obscure parliamentary ritual known as parliamentary ping-pong. Oh. <laughs> Ruth pales visibly. Yes. Um, well, I think it's fair to say uh, a lot of what goes on at ping-pong is behind the scenes and quite difficult to follow, uh, yeah. even for established watchers of Parliament like ourselves. But essentially, yeah, if the, if the House does anything other than agree to the bill in the form agreed by the first House, then it goes back to that first House for, the, for it to consider the amendments that have been made. And then when the bill is considered by that first House again, it will decide what it wants to do in respect of those changes, and it will send in the form of a message in the bill back to the second House for it to consider whether it likes or, or not the, the, the changes that have been proposed in the, the first House. Yeah. So and MP- you try and narrow yeah. the differences. And this can go for several rounds. A bill can be sent back from the House of Lords, MPs can strike down all the amendments peers have made, send it back, peers then do a slightly different version of yeah. their changes they've made and 
possibly send it back again. There's a thing called double insistence, where if they pass <laughs> the same amendment twice, the whole bill would fall, and that's a kind of yeah, nuclear option that that's cost. never done. Yeah. Even, even, yeah. If the, even if the distinction between what they passed the first time and what they passed the second yeah. time is so small that it's barely visible yeah. to the naked eye, it still, it still um, avoids that. Yeah, pitfall. I mean, essentially what you're trying to do between the two houses is the, the House will agree to an amendment from, from the other House, amend the amendment, reject the amendment or reject the amendment but offer an alternative wording in, mm. in lieu as it's called and you have this this back and forth and as you say trying to avoid the situation where both houses are twice rejecting essentially the same thing yeah. the key thing here is what's going on in the back channels is is the negotiations between uh, for example government ministers and labor shadow ministers or whatever lords coalition has made the amendment to try and come to an agreement and that goes on as long as it goes on and there may be several rounds of ping pong over a particularly contentious point before a bill is absolutely finally settled. With the one proviso that if you run out of parliamentary time and a bill hasn't been agreed by the end of a parliamentary session, if you're right up against Parliament being prorogued, if a bill's not agreed when Parliament is prorogued, it falls. Yeah. So you've got to be sitting down when the music stops, essentially. And just going back to that point about a lot of this going on behind the scenes, I mean, in the Commons they have what's called Reasons Committee. Hmm. Um, they basically meet in a, in a room behind the Speaker's chair and it's the MPs on a cross-party basis who've been appointed to this Reasons Committee to basically negotiate what the message is going to be to, that goes back to the Lords. And interestingly, a number of MPs have said to me that they find that part of the process amongst the most satisfying aspects of the legislative process, not just because it's private, but because it's private, they can have the kinds of discussions they wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable having out in public in the chamber or in committee. But, of course, we don't see any of that. That's that's the bit. The journalists don't see beneath the hood and yeah. see the motor turning over. Yeah. And so it's a very obscure and quite difficult to explain process. But eventually, in normal circumstances, both houses will agree on a final text of the bill. Then it's off to the sovereign to be signed. So then you've got royal assent. So, yeah, when the bill is agreed in an identical form by both houses, royal assent, um, and that has to be signified by the monarch through what are known as letters patent um, and notified then to each house, which basically means it's a a published written order issued by the sovereign. It's kind of form of legal instrument. And then once the bill has got royal assent, it's announced by the speaker or the Lord Speaker for each house at the earliest convenient moment in proceedings so they can interrupt proceedings if, if a bill's been granted royal assent that day announce it in in the house and they have the, we use norman french absolutely so the, uh, the king wills it yes it used to king. be the ren the ren the vaux yeah was the phrase i, I apologize in advance for my horrible pronunciation of archaic norman french here. and the, the, the other thing is of course that the monarch in theory once upon a time could refuse bills but that hasn't happened for like 300 years yes no i mean it was it queen anne possibly yes you're <laughs> digging into my <laughs> uh, uh, to my historical uh, uh, knowledge there yeah i mean it's inconceivable that the monarch would, inconce- would not uh, grant royal assent to 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 an act now i think the, the doctrine is it was i think it was written in erskine may wasn't it uh, in the victorian era that the queen had to sign her own death warrant if it had been properly passed by parliament so uh, the role of the monarch here is purely to do the rubber stamping i'm afraid these yeah. days but then that's not the end of the story because although the the Act has got royal assent and is now law, it actually, sections of the Act, provisions within the Act require to be commenced. So you need commencement orders for that to happen. And what you, you find is there's usually a bit of a, a time gap between um, you know, royal assent being granted and the, those commencement orders coming through. And sometimes 
sections of acts are never commenced. Whole sections, whole parts, whole schedules, and even an act itself sometimes not commenced. The point about this is that sometimes you need to set up, say, an agency. If you're the government, mm. you need an agency to deliver whatever's in the bill. So you might need to wait on the commencement order being passed until you've got the structure in place to deliver whatever policy it was. But sometimes stuff that's just plain inconvenient gets stopped. There's an act a few years ago that was going to require porn websites to have age verification systems in place. And that provision was never commenced. So it's not actually the law. It's a law that could be activated, but it's not there at the moment. And the Easter Act, the act to change the date of Easter has never been commenced. It sits on the statute book, so it's, it's, it's law lying there on legislation.gov.uk as the law of the land, but it doesn't have effect because it hasn't been commenced. And I think this is something that um, a lot of certainly members of the public find really quite difficult to understand. Why would Parliament pass these laws and then not, not commence them? Um, it's also, I think, something that a lot of MPs don't often realise, that the laws that they've been involved in, in scrutinising and, and granting assent to, that they might have been involved in getting an amendment for it. It might be months possibly years before it's commenced and you know the government might never get around to it and just a final note on terminology when you've got when we're talking about a draft law going through parliament it's a bill once it's been approved once it's gone through both houses and been signed into law by the monarch it becomes an act of parliament so that's the distinction between a bill and an act hope you've enjoyed this thanks everyone Well, thanks for listening to that. We hope you enjoyed that discussion. If you've got any more matters you'd like us to explain about things that go on in Parliament, why things happen in a certain way, why certain other things don't happen, you can send your questions to us at hansarsociety.org.uk forward slash PMUQ. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk slash PM or find us on social media at Hansard Society. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns.